You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. It's so great to be with you this morning and thank you, Adam, for the invitation to come and speak on the matter of how we might think about children in the church, how we might raise our children. It might seem like an obvious question and in your mind it might seem like there's an obvious answer, but we need to be careful because over the generations people have had very different opinions about how we should think about children. About a hundred years ago, children were working in mines or children were cleaning chimneys and there was a movement to try and think about how children and work should be understood. How how should they protect children? In that day, about a hundred years ago, animals had more rights than children did. You weren't allowed to uh, engage in a cockfight, you weren't allowed to bait bears, but you were allowed to abuse children by sending them up chimneys as chimney sweeps. So there was, in Britain at least, uh, an inquiry about how they might care for children, and I've got on the handout for you a quote. When arguing for the rights of children, the committee said... A child is a member of the animal kingdom and because we protect animals, we should protect children as well. So protecting animals came before protecting children. And it was because children were seen as animals, which might or might not be (laughs) your your default thinking, because children were seen as animals, the argument was, well, if we protect animals, children are animals, we should protect children. How remarkable. That was only a hundred years ago in Britain. About 40 years ago, there was an inquiry in Britain as to how children might be protected from abuse. And in that report in 1988, the statement was made, the child is a person, not an object of concern. Not just an object, not just a thing, but a person. This was in 1988. A legal report in Britain is trying to argue that children are really human beings. So there's lots of very confused thinking about what children are, not just in the church, but in the culture around us as well. It's great that you're having this seminar this morning to think about a theology of children. Now, in our own world, in the West and in Asia, there are declining birth rates. That is, mainly families are having fewer than two children. Though that's not the case in Africa, nor is it the case 
in much of South America. But at least in the West and in Asia, there have been declining birth rates. There might be lots of cultural, economic reasons for that. In the West, at least, I often hear people saying that the more children you have, the lower your standard of living, the lower their standard of living. I have friends who've said, uh, we're not going to have children. We're not going to have children uh, because we just can't afford to raise them, or we can't afford to raise them in a way that we would like to raise them, that we think we should be able to raise them. That is, there are certain standards about education or providing clothes or leisure pursuits, and if we can't afford that, we don't have them. They're just inconveniences because they ruin my standard of living as an adult because I have to share what I have. And can I really provide for them in a way that I think I'd like to be provided for myself? And that kind of comment can be heard from people who aren't Christians and can be heard from Christians as well. We might have been influenced by our culture more than we often realise. Now, I understand that uh, for many Christians and for non-Christians as well, there might be frustrations because you're not able to have children. You've been trying and trying. And technology promises a lot, but technology in the end might not provide all our needs. There are very deep frustrations because we'd like to have children, but we can't. Some friends of mine have wanted desperately to have children and were involved in a number of different IVF programs, though they decided in the end to pursue an IVF program at St Vincent's Hospital because at St Vincent's they have different ethical standards for what might happen to uh, fertilised eggs. But in the end it, it was to no avail. They weren't able to have children. They'd been pursuing it for years but decided in the end it was becoming for them an idol. And so they decided to give up pursuing the hope to have kids because it was getting in the way of their love for the Lord. So remarkably, they had an evening where they invited 10 or 12 of their friends. It was a beautiful moment. And they explained all the different kinds of medical procedures they'd undergone and explained their kinds of emotional reactions and they were announcing to us all that they were no longer going to try, that this was getting in the way of their relationship with the Lord, uh, that these were the six things you could say to encourage them and these were the six things you should not say or we should not say that would be unhelpful for them in their own Christian walk. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. Uh, they've never been able to have children since. That's an example of 
not children being an inconvenience, but children being an idol and building your life around the possibility, not just the presence of children, but the possibility of having children as well. Children in our world can be seen in lots of different ways. And often we've problematized the role of children in our lives. That probably carries over into the church as well, truth be told. So, well done you for coming out this morning to think about these issues and try and explore some of the theological dimensions that we might all have healthier views of children in our own life and in the church and that we might see God's perspective on these issues as well. Let me read some passages of scripture just to give us some focus The remainder of this session will be more about kind of bigger theological themes. In Genesis chapter 1, we read these words. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That's the same thing. Image and likeness are basically the same word. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God builds human beings who bear his image. We all bear God's image. God's image is not just given to people who are highly rational. God's image isn't just given to people who are highly successful. God's image is given to everyone. We all have responsibilities in the creation. Responsibilities towards the Lord, responsibilities to each other, responsibilities towards the earth. All human beings including children, bear the image of God. And that's not impacted by the fall. After the fall, we still bear God's image. I'm reading from Genesis 6, 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, wait a second, am I reading the right verse? No, I'm not reading the right verse. And I think I'm re- not reading the right verse. I'll come back to that. The idea is, when I find the verse, that even after the fall, human beings bear God's image. And it's true in the book of James as well, in the New Testament, the image language is still applied to human beings a long time after the fall. From Psalm 127. 
Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. God has a plan for the world. God is building his house. That's a picture for God pursuing his own purposes. And God's purposes have a dignified place for children within it. God's plans aren't interrupted by children. Children are foundational, instrumental in God's plans for the world. Or Isaiah 65. This is a picture of the new world. I'm reading from verse 17. Isaiah writes, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. This is a picture of the future of God's recreated world. Verse 18, But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. In that new world, there's going to be nothing but joy. No more, verse 20, shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days, for the young man shall die of a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them, they shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat. For For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labour in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. In describing this beautiful new world, children are described and placed within it. Isaiah's vision could have just had a new world where there are grown-ups. But this new world has grown-ups and little ones. It's quite an extraordinary picture of the way God places children not only in his plans now, but in his purposes forever. Or Luke 18, much the same verses as Christian read for us a few minutes ago. Luke 18, verses 15 to 17. They were bringing even infants to him that he might touch an even infant's How ridiculous in a culture where children were to be seen but not heard. They were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. How dare you bring children to Jesus? How impertinent. But Jesus called to them and said, saying, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom 
shall not, uh, like a child, shall not enter it. One of the most exalted phrases Jesus can use is to talk about entering the kingdom, and he's speaking about children, not just grown-ups, but children entering the kingdom. In fact, they are kind of the model for adults entering the kingdom. It's flipping so much cultural expectation on its head. Children are a dignified, noble gift from the Lord. Now, I know there's lots of pain that goes along with welcoming children into your family and your church. There's lots of changes and adjustments that need to be made. That's the pastoral reality. But behind the pastoral reality, there's a theological reality that children are a dignified gift. The Lord gives generously by giving to you, your family and your church his good gifts. But there are some complexities, aren't there? in our own church life, in our own thinking about families and family life, when we start thinking about the place of children. A couple of things that we need to be careful of, more theologically, that children are not your possessions. Children have their own rights. Children are a gift that you need to nurture, not just a possession that you own. That does start shifting the way we might think about welcoming children. But also it must be said that children are not mini-adults. They do have distinct developmental needs. They're growing in the Lord. And we need to see them not just as possessions, as things, not just as mini adults, but as gifts from the Lord who need to be nurtured, helped, encouraged through different life phases or stages. And that's been quite an important insight in the 20th century, where we've decided with good physical, psychological basis that children need to be seen as having their own capacity and helping them through that capacity. That's why we have Sunday school programs that try and teach children according to whether they're in grade 3 or grade 5 or year 9 and so on. So as we think about children, we need to be careful that we're ruling out the worst options. They're not possessions. They're not many adults. We need to treat them as developmentally, in developmentally appropriate ways. But it's true as well that in the household of God, uh, the nuclear family is also not primary. This might be a little bit harder to hear. In the ancient world, 
the household had about 140 people in it. So when you read in in the Bible, in in 1 and 2 Timothy or Titus, uh, Paul writing about the household of God or the family of God, you must not think two adults, two kids and a dog. A household was 140 people. There were aunts, there were widows, there were cousins, there were three generations normally. There might have been some people who weren't related to you, who lived with you. There might have been servants who had freedom or who did not. A household in the Bible is not a nuclear family. So in that kind of situation, when Paul says the church is the household of God, he's not highlighting the nuclear family. He's talking about a messy set of relationships, dynamics, ages, relationships. And in those households, often with an interior courtyard that didn't have a roof, four walls, perhaps two stories, in the middle a courtyard that was open to the elements, is where church happened on Sundays, where the household would gather in that open space to worship, to learn and to serve. The nuclear family is not the primary model for what a church should be. So I'm a little bit nervous about Bible translations that take that word household and translate it as family. There is a a Greek word for family. There's also a Greek word for household, and they're different. So with this messy thing called the household of God, the church, how do we think about children within it? Well, I think we should understand our role to serve children well and to allow children to serve us too. That is, in this household, if children bear the image of God, as I assume they do, children have responsibilities to God, they have responsibilities to other human beings, and they have responsibilities to the earth over which we are set. Children need to be able to serve us and find opportunities for being involved. That will look different in different places according to their developmental stage. But welcoming children's contribution, I think, is really important. They have gifts too. Now, I need to say that It's important we care for children, given their vulnerabilities as children. They're not just mini-adults. They have their own particular developmental needs, and it's really important that we develop safe churches. I know it's a lot of work for the pastoral team, and there's lots of complexity in developing 
safe churches in terms of accountabilities and training. It's uh, an enormous impost. But I think, nonetheless, the way we love children is to provide well for their safety. As challenging or as resource-intensive as that might be. I think it's also important that we formally acknowledge the place of children in our churches. And we do that from a church's perspective by acknowledging them through dedications or acknowledging them through baptism. It's one thing to say we value children, but to, to make space in our Sunday services formally to acknowledge the presence, the role of children in our midst, I think is also pretty significant. Different churches will do it in different ways, of course. But if we believe that children bear the image of God, and if, if we believe the words of Jesus that children are a model for what it means to enter the kingdom, an exalted model that parents adults need to imitate, as Jesus says, then I think having more formal acknowledgements in Sunday services is important. In another sense, in church, uh, we address each other as brothers and sisters. The whole household is relativized, the role of the local nuclear family is relativized in the very language we use to address each other. We are one big household and children are part of that household. In a sense, right, kids are my brothers and sisters too. It's not just that adults are my brothers, adults are my sisters. Kids are my brothers, kids are my sisters too. It's not just that the nuclear family has been relativised, but age has been relativised as well. I can address an older man as my brother. I can address a younger woman as my sister. The brother-sister language puts us all on the same level. Beautifully. Because the church is a down payment on the new world in which... There is no place for marriage for families, as Jesus himself teaches in Matthew chapter 19. Church is heaven brought forward. The household of God is heaven brought forward. There are new rules here. There are new relationships here because we're practicing being in heaven already. That's what going to church means. And of course, it doesn't mean that it's you as parents don't have responsibilities to your children in church or outside of church. It's just that in church, what belongs to this world is somehow less important because church is modelling, practising, getting ready for the new world. Church is a dress rehearsal for the new world. All believers 
call each other brothers and sisters. All believers have the status of children. You and I are children. Our children are children of God as well. We've all been adopted into God's family. There's only one Father here, our Heavenly Father. So the children of Christians within the church can offer some kind of counter-cultural witness. How you do your child raising, how you think about children within your family, but also how you think about children in the church, can be a wonderful way of showing to the world why and how we are different. We can show to the world that we're different because we decide that there are more important things to give to your kids than just lots of material possessions. We can show to the world we're different because those parents help me with my children. Or me as a single person can be involved in parenting your kids too. There are so many ways that the church can offer a counter-cultural witness to the world. Now, some Christians would say uh, the counter-cultural witness is by having 19 kids, uh, that having two kids is just what everyone does, but we'll show we're different by having 19. That might be your thing, fair enough. Uh, but it might be that there's more ways of showing that we're different than just the actual number. We can show we're different from the world around us by the way we think about children, the way we care for children, who nurtures children, how we provide examples to children, and how our children are models for us of the world to come. Of course, I want you to be good parents. And Paul in Ephesians 6 helps parents, particularly fathers, to think about how they might discipline their children in the knowledge of the Lord. But even in those instructions in the New Testament that describe parents and children in very concrete ways, Paul is already adjusting his world's expectations of what families will be like. And he asks the fathers not to provoke their children, which in its day was quite a radical statement. Friends, children and their role in our lives has been problematized in many ways in our world. Either we treat them as inconveniences or we might idolise them. But I want us to know this morning that children play a dignified role in God's purposes and in his church. They bear the image of God as adults do. You don't grow into the image of God when you become rational when you make decisions for yourself. The image of God is a gift we bear 
from the first moments of our life. And children being a dignified gift have a generous role within the local fellowship. They are models of the kingdom. We want to nurture them. The local fellowship relativizes the significance of the nuclear family and gives place for singles as well as for a variety of adults to help with our child rearing. Uh, We are all brothers and sisters here together, no matter your age or your stage or your capacity. I love this quote from Martin Luther in the Reformation who invented family life for pastors. Before the Reformation, all ministers were single. In the Roman church, ministers could not marry. Luther marries and has a lot of children uh, and provides a kind of model for what the Protestant family might look like. This is, quote, Now you tell me when a father goes ahead and washes diapers or performs some other mean task for his child and someone ridicules him as an effeminate fault, that is, why should a father be doing this kind of work? God, with all his angels and creatures, is smiling. Not because the father is washing diapers, but because he is doing so in Christian faith. Every part of our life, when it's done in faith in Christ, is honoured by God and blessed, even the most mundane features of rearing children. So let me pray. Uh, There might be a few moments, Christian, a few moments of questions. We have quick time anyway, so let me just pray and then you can hold your questions for morning tea. How wonderful it is, Heavenly Father, that we can be together this morning and think about these really important questions of children in your world and in your church. Please help us. Uh, as we talk and listen to get a better grasp on this, that our children would grow up in the love and fear of the Lord and would serve you all their days. For Jesus' sake. Amen.